Welcome to season three of the Yoga Therapy Hour podcast. My name is Amy Wheeler and I'm your host. We are so happy to tell you all that's happening in the world of yoga therapy. And we love to find guests from all over the world so that we can share and learn and grow together. Some of the things that are happening in season three that we find so exciting is that not only are we continuing with the free gift that we are giving out every single week in season two, and you can see more about that in the show notes, but now we are adding a YouTube channel and you can see all of these podcasts on video. The YouTube channel is called Optimal State with Amy Wheeler. Some people like to watch video maybe you want to use it for one of your trainings these videos on youtube will be there for you to use for free we would love your support we have opened up a patreon page that is going to help the podcast flourish and grow you can help us to expand and grow and create more content for you and we'd love for you to visit the patreon page which is called optimal state and yoga therapy hour podcast so let's go into our guest today and please nourish yourself take time for yourself and really relax into listening to the podcast hello today i interview nina zolotov and many of you may know nina because she has done yoga for healthy aging blog for years and years which she and Baxter Bell, who many of you know, turned into a book, Yoga for Healthy Aging. Nina also has helped Timothy McCall to bring about his book called Saving My Neck, which is about oral cancer, something that's now become very close to my heart also. So I'm sure you have seen and felt and heard Nina throughout the years, but you may not have met her personally. She's an excellent writer. Shambhala is her publisher, and I think they could see that her writing skill is beyond what most of us could ever dream of. And when Nina asked me if if maybe it would be a good match for the podcast to talk about her new book called Yoga for Times of Change, at first I was a little hesitant because as some of you know, I try not to do just yoga on this podcast. I really try to link things for the most part into yoga therapy. But the more that I read about Nina's book or, you know, different chapters, I thought this is very, very close to yoga therapy. And the difference is that there's not a formal assessment like we have in yoga therapy. In yoga therapy, we're going to assess you physically, how is your range of motion? How is your strength? How is your flexibility? How is your balance? We're going to assess you on the subtle body, more physiologically, maybe your nervous system functioning or dysfunctioning, your insomnia, your digestion. In the initial assessment and ongoing assessment, we're going to look at your mental fluctuations and the places you tend to go, whether it's anxiety, depression, fear, anger. We're going to look at your personality, your communication style, your ability or inability to connect. We're going to look at your connection to your spiritual life, if you choose to define that for yourself. So, you know, in yoga therapy, we have a very 
thorough assessment process, which is what we learn about in yoga therapy school. And then we set goals together, co-negotiated goals, and we track progress over time towards those goals using the tools of yoga therapy. That's kind of the definition of yoga therapy. Now, Nina did not write this book for yoga therapy, but I was so pleasantly surprised to see so many of the concepts of yoga therapy woven through her book, whether she knew it or intended it or not. It really had a lot of crossover. So in some ways, you know, it's a sticky situation because what is yoga? What is yoga therapy? But I don't like to pit the two of those against each other. We are one yoga family and yoga therapy is a niche within the larger body of yoga, right? So yoga is the family and, you know, yoga therapy is the auntie, right? Within the family. So I don't think we need to think about them being separate. There's a lot of crossover. And as you listen to this interview, I think you're going to have some really nice reflections about yoga and yoga therapy and how it can be used to help people suffer during times of change, which in my opinion, this is a very timely book because with all the changes that are going on in society, with everything, you name it, personally, professionally, societally, politically, we are in a time of change. I think it's really hard for people. I think it's hard to have all these external forces working on us. And some people don't feel self-empowered. They don't feel sovereign inside of themselves to deal with all the external chaos that's going on. And so I think if there's one thing that both yoga and yoga therapy are helping us to try to get a handle on, that is self-empowerment that I can look at my state and realize that I'm not at my best or I'm maybe out of balance. And I have tools and technologies within me that I can use to feel better. And therefore I am sovereign. And that's what yoga is all about, is helping us come to that place of feeling self-empowered, recognizing through self-regulation, self-awareness, and maybe even self-actualization, recognizing who we really are and that we can be in control of our emotions, even when everything is feeling rather out of control. All right, so let's go meet Nina. Today, I would like to introduce you to someone who's written a really amazing book for these times. Welcome to Nina Zolotov. How are you today, Nina? Good. How are you? Great. I'm feeling happy to talk about this book. I feel like it's such a, a perfect book for these times. I'll, I'll show a picture. Just came out on June 14th, 2022. And it's called Yoga for Times of Change, Practices and Meditations for Moving Through Stress, Anxiety, Grief, and Life Transitions. So why did you write this book, Nina? Because you were writing this book maybe before all of these big changes that have been hitting lately happened. That's true. 
I came up with the idea before the pandemic because my editor at Chambala actually invited me to write a book by myself. And I'd never gotten an invitation like that before. So it seemed like something I couldn't pass up. And I had to think for a while, though, uh, about what I wanted to write about. And I realized that I had a lot of information that I've been collecting and teaching for like the last 20 years, at least, about emotional healing and about how to kind of navigate life's ups and downs with more equanimity because it was my own personal journey. And then as I began to learn, I also wanted to share what I learned with other people. So I had a lot of information on the blog about that. And I had information that's the yoga for healthy aging blog that is. And I had a lot of information that I taught small groups or whatever, but I realized I'd never really written about it in a sort of collected way. And I think I got the idea for framing it in terms of change and uncertainty and all that from reading various Buddhist books about that. I think it's a really important topic, but when I looked at the Buddhist books about it, I I always saw that they just offered meditation and philosophy. And I realized that yoga had a lot of other things to offer as well that weren't covered in those books. So I thought it'd be really interesting to kind of pull it all together under the idea of what I was thinking of as yoga for adapting to and accepting change. So that was my original idea in 2019 when I proposed the idea to my editor and she really loved it. It took a while to actually get the proposal accepted and all that. So by the time I signed the contract, (laughs) it was actually April of 2020. So just after the pandemic had started and I had started writing the book beforehand because I had a pretty good idea it was going to be accepted because she was so enthusiastic about it. So that was how the timing worked out. And then it sounds like you got to kind of maybe use some of this pandemic as as food. I mean, if, if you were just really committing fully to this right when the pandemic hit and now what we've been over two years. Yeah. Sounds like you spent a good part of the pandemic writing this. Yeah, I wrote the bulk of it in the pandemic and went into this amazing space during it. But but definitely the pandemic and also the things that happened that first year where there was a lot of political turmoil. And then also like out in California, as you must know, we had an extreme fire season. Those things all affected my thinking about change and impermanence and how we experience them. Because I think before my orientation had been really more towards like the personal changes we all go through in our lives, which I like refer to as the Rocky Road ice cream of life, you know, with the sweet marshmallows and the hard nuts, you know, like divorce and losing someone we love, maybe losing a job, even positive things like getting married, moving to a new place. All, the, all these kinds of challenges that we go through, but it be, quickly became clear to me that just the power of community changes, global changes, and so on, like, like the pandemic, like political turmoil, like, you know, climate change. And, you know, then now we have the war going on. And all of these things can affect us quite 
you know, they affect our lives in in everyday ways, whether it means we can't see people we used to see, or they affect our stress levels because we're worried about people, people close to us, or even people not close to us, a group of people who are suffering some in some part of the world. And all that can, you know, cause a lot of stress and anxiety and grief and anger and all those feelings as well as what we experience personally. I just can't tell you, you know, both teaching at the university, but also my private clientele, the amount of emotions that people are trying to digest and process. And it it just keeps coming. It feels like an avalanche. Many of the, the young people, especially I know they just feel like giving up. So I have a, a question for you. What is it that makes change so hard for us? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I like to look at how human beings evolved in order to understand this. Because when humans were evolving, we're like hardwired to react to danger as quickly as possible with either aggressive or evasive responses. That's what helped us survive. Someone who's happy all the time, feels safe all the time and comfortable all the time is going to be eliminated from the gene pool pretty quickly. So we have these built-in reactions to change because any kind of change could be a potential danger for us. And when we encounter change, it triggers unpleasant emotions in us to get us to kind of react to that Mm. with either fear, anger, or regret, because that is what impels us to do something about the situations. So that's a big one, the fight, flight, or freeze response that we get in response to change, anything new. So, I mean, I I like to use the example of me getting married as a change that was positive even. And I didn't even have a big wedding or anything. I was just going to get married to the man I was already living with. And I was still kind of a nervous wreck because it was a big change, even though it was a happy one. And then, you know, obviously some other big change, like you suddenly lose your job or whatever, you're going to have a strong reaction to that instead of just being happy because it's, you know, it's a situation that you need to deal with and your nervous system is telling you, you know, do something about this, right? Yeah, the the kind of safety security balance gets disrupted and and that's painful to us. Right, yeah, the pain comes from your nervous system really wanting you to do something about it, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not just like your mind going, oh, this is not great, but you know, because like, your oh, your nervous system is not very smart <laughs> at all. So any kind of change, it pretty much interprets as like life-threatening. So, you know, we do encounter life-threatening situations in our everyday lives. They always like to talk about primitive times and the things that we used to encounter, right? They always go back to that. But in modern times, we do too. Like, you know, if your house catches on fire, you need to do something right away. Or like for us, an earthquake or something, you're like, you need to like get shelter. So your nervous system prompts you to to take action. So that's what the the feelings, the strong feelings are all about to get you to act right away. But, you know, if you have to do public speaking, for example, and you're, you're terrified about that, that's not really life-threatening, but your nervous system doesn't know the difference. So I want to ask you, this may be off topic, just say, mm, no thanks if, if this isn't interesting to you, but I feel like those kind of fight, flight, fear, freeze happens kind of in the the old brain, the parts of us that are trying to keep us safe. But we as humans have this prefrontal cortex, which is what 
meditation helps us develop. And through our prefrontal cortex, we can use it to our advantage. And I'll just give you an example. When I've had a big loss or a big shift, a huge change, if you will, in my life, my first response is freezing and I'm, you know, my nervous system is like, no, I don't want this, but I've learned to be able to use my prefrontal cortex more, my thinking brain to tell myself, well, this could open up a new door. And the thing that you were doing in the first place was, you know, maybe feeling a little old or stale or stuck. Maybe it's okay that that's getting swept away. And there's all this opportunity and spaciousness now. So what do you think of that using kind of our our newer brain to talk ourselves out of that fight, flight, freeze response? Yeah, I I mean, we definitely have multiple parts of our brain doing different things at the same time. That's something I just learned about recently, the modular theory of the brain. So, but I mean, I think we all experience that. And so, yeah, at the same time that you're having these strong emotional reactions, you can use the witness part of your mind to notice what you're feeling. And I really encourage people to do that. That's, you know, as a self-inquiry process, both, you know, in the moment, if you can, by pausing and kind of really noticing what you're feeling and, and evaluating it. And then also later on when you have more time to like really look at at your feelings and not think of them as negative either, but thinking of of them as, as messages to you. But at some point you decide like, you know, is this really a danger or not? Because, you know, sometimes there is a real danger and you want to do something about it. Maybe you're angry at the way people of color have been treated in our society. And that's, that's a message to, you know, actually do something about it. But then sometimes, you know, as you said, maybe you're just getting upset about a change or situation that isn't really life threatening or dangerous to you or someone you care about, in which case then you can use your mind to work with the thoughts that you're having and the feelings you're having and maybe let to let go of them, as you said, or like I use one of the suggestions I use for, working with those types of feelings when you realize that they're not helping you and they're actually counterproductive to your situation is like cultivating the opposite from the yoga sutra. So that's what it sounds like you're doing, right? You're saying, no, no, this, you know, not think of this, this particular situation as a danger, as a situation to be afraid or, or angry or whatever about, but yeah, thinking of it differently. So you're kind of replacing the thoughts that your nervous system were prompting with thoughts coming from another part of you. Yeah. And in Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, we call that Praktipaksha Bhavana, right? Getting a new perspective. I wanted to read from your book on page 94. It's a, a section on responding in the moment to anger. And you're talking about this idea of kind of witnessing yourself before you react. And you have a really nice quote from Beth Gibbs that I'd like to to read. It says, this is how Beth Gibbs describes her experience with witnessing herself during a burst of anger. Physically, it felt like a volcano spewing boiling red lava in my belly. I noticed my breath. It was shallow and stuck in my chest. Energetically, I felt heavy, tight, constricted. Mentally, of course, I was seething. 
The act of witnessing was like being in the eye of the hurricane. It calmed me and I was able to watch my anger settle on its own. I thought that was a really great description for, you know, how it is that we feel when we have a loss or a disappointment or expectations aren't met. So there's two techniques already. Number one, just witnessing it. And then number two, cultivating the opposite. But it, I think a lot of what you're writing about in this book is the actual asana, right? That there, there are things we can do with our bodies to work through anger or anxiety or fear. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? It's not just yeah. Yeah, I think that's what's really true. I mean, I think that's why, you know, I realized that yoga hadn't really been discussed in terms of the ways it can help you with change because so for one thing with the asanas, and that's just been so powerful for me in particular, not just working with my thoughts. I include that in the book because I think that's part of it, but really sometimes, you know, especially if you're too upset about something, you, you really can't think clearly. I don't know if you've experienced that, but the, you know that's something I learned from Dan Libby, the psychologist who works with the veterans about how the fight, flight, or freeze response actually affects what we're thinking about. So you know, because we sort of focus on strategies for fighting or fleeing, you know, and we're not really thinking about other options, as you said. So a lot of times, before you can really like evaluate your situation or even work with your thoughts or whatever, you need to calm yourself down or lift yourself up a little bit. That's why I think the yoga stress management practices are so essential for whatever emotion that you're experiencing. So I have a lot of suggestions for those in can, the book. Can I say something about that? I really appreciated yeah. that, that I was reading a, a chapter on anger and how to work with anger in an embodied way, but also mentally with the prefrontal cortex, as we just discussed. But in the chapter, it said, hey, by the way, you might go back to chapter three on stress management because it, it sounds to me like if your baseline level of stress is causing you to be completely contracted most of the day, then just about anything is going to throw you over the edge. And, and that maybe a big part of the solution to anger or anxiety or depression or fear is to just work to bring your entire baseline down every day, every hour as a new way of living. Would you say that's accurate? I totally agree with that. I think that's so important. You know, when I started the Yoga for Healthy Aging blog, it was like over 10 years ago and I had stress management as such an important topic as related to Yoga for Healthy Aging for health reasons and also for mental health reasons. And, you know, I've only... Over the years, I've even become more convinced that that's just like the number one thing that that yoga has to offer and learning how to do that and practice that way is just so beneficial for all those things. I was talking to my cousin about it because she was getting really stressed out lately and she couldn't figure out why some things about her her house that she was remodeling kind of set her off. And I said, you know, I think it's because your baseline stress levels are, are so high because she couldn't really understand, like, why am I getting so upset about this? And I think I said, I think it's because your baseline stress levels are so high. And then she said, oh, I get it. She came up with the best metaphor. She said, it reminds me like of pouring tea into a cup 
that's already full. So as you add more tea, it overflows. And I'm like, that's it exactly. If you can keep your baseline stress levels lower than when a stressful situation or in a challenging situation comes up, you're not going to react as strongly. You have more room left before you like really go over the edge. And yeah, for anger, like I totally agree. Like, you know, if you're stressed out, I mean, I think we all notice this in our home life, you know, mm-hmm. if we're, we're stressed out about something, things can just irritate us more easily, or we can lose our temper more with our, our family or whatever, just, just for no reason or a reason that normally wouldn't set us off. So yeah, we can tend to move into anxiety or anger or even depression when our stress levels are chronic and too high. The, the way that I love, you know, the words they're using in the literature these days is that our window of tolerance shrinks. So if our our baseline level of stress is just way too high for us to process and digest, that means our window of tolerance gets very, very slender and any little thing can just set us off. I know in my own life that the times that I have acted inappropriately are exactly that that I had been under stress for a long period of time. My window of tolerance had gotten so small and my reaction to the situation in front of me was inappropriate, but it wasn't about the situation in front of me. It was about everything that that's connected to. And I think you talk a little bit about that in the chapter on anger. Do you want to say anything else about that? Let's just say anger, fear, depression, anxiety, any of them really it's not always about what's happening in that moment. It's there's a lot of un, undigested emotions from childhood, from last week, from you know whatever's going on in our society that maybe we're our baseline level of stress is so high and our window of tolerance is so small that we're actually reacting to many things, not just the conversation we're having with our spouse. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I guess the best thing to do, I mean, the thing that I encourage people to do is to kind of monitor themselves. So learn through self-inquiry, like whatever emotion they have more difficulty with. For me, it's really anxiety that, that I have trouble with. So over the years, I've learned to monitor myself when I'm stressed out. And it's not just like an intellectual thing. It's like to notice what's going on in my body. I think that's really important. So you might get some physical symptoms from the stress. I mean, I get a like a burning feeling in my chest when I'm really stressed out, right? And then I get insomnia. So certain symptoms are really obvious, like the insomnia. I lose my appetite, but really that burning feeling, when I get that burning feeling, that's just like a warning sign for me. So I haven't gone over the edge yet. I can't, I know what's going on beforehand. So what I always do when I start feeling that way is I really change things quickly because I have gone over the edge <laughs> and it wasn't good. And I don't want to do like that again. <laughs> standing on the edge of the cliff with one so, toe over. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, no. So how do I back away? I do two things. One is I kind of change my life a little bit. So, you know, I kind of withdraw from doing as many things as I normally do. And, and from doing things that I consider stressful just for a while, because then I know I'll get better. And then I just double down on my, my yogas for stress management practices. And by that, I mean, I'm like, that's what my practice is about. I'm doing it every day. 
So actually, uh, I didn't go into that state at the beginning of the pandemic, but I looked at the situation and I was like, wow, this situation could really push me to the edge. So I actually got proactive and I doubled down and every day meditated for half an hour. And then at another time of day, I did legs up the wall pose for 20 minutes at least. Those were my minimum. I might do other yoga practices and I certainly took walks outside and everything. But that, and that's, you know, a lot of time per day. So that's almost an hour per day minimum. But I was just doing that. You know, it's only a case of one, as my husband is a scientist, say, end of one. But, you know, I did pretty well. I mean, at the beginning of pandemic, I was hearing about people who weren't sleeping and who were crying every day and all this stuff. And, you know, I'm not saying I wasn't stressed out or didn't care, but I, I felt for me, I was pretty grounded because I really focused on the stress management to prevent, like you said, that window of tolerance from getting so narrow that things would just keep pushing me over the edge. So I didn't know that term window of tolerance, but um, mm. I'll be using it. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, you know, I, when I was listening to you talk, I, my, my mind was clicking because I heard you say that you're at the point now, probably because of your yoga and meditation practice, where you can see it coming and you can back off quickly change behaviors, you know, de-link yourself from people, places, and things, amp up your practice. I feel like that's a, a whole salutogenic model of what we want yoga and meditation to, to be. But I would say most of my clients, my private clients, number one, don't realize there's a connection between their baseline level of stress and what's going on in their life. Number two, don't have those signals figured out like you do the insomnia and the, the burning in the chest, like that, that connection has not yet been made. And in fact, if I would point it out to them, they would be like, Oh no, no, that, that has nothing to do with it. You know, like, it's interesting to me to work with someone from being so oblivious about these signs and symptoms and, and the messages, as you say, the body is giving and then slowly, and it usually for me takes about two to three years, slowly helping them get to the place where you are now. It's a long journey. How long did it take you to, to really figure out that your body had signals for you that were connected to your baseline level of stress and that you could do something about it? Do you remember back? Yeah. I actually think, because it didn't evolve yoga, you know, I have had sort of an irregular journey with all these things. And I started doing yoga for exercise and I just loved it. And I really didn't know how to connect all that with all the other stuff that we've been talking about. I wasn't learning about it in my classes. And, you know, you typically don't, unless you're a teacher in a teacher training program or something, because you just get your class and then you go home and you practice like in the class. And it was good, but it wasn't really helping me at all. So it was, it was actually my therapist who said something to me that totally made me change the way I saw everything. I was in a very stressed out state because I was working for a software startup company. I have this past that's kind of, kind of antithetical to my 
21st century life. In the 20th century, I, I was a technical writer uh, and I worked for a lot of software companies in the early days. And at the end of the, in the 90s, I was working for a software startup company. I was one of the first 11 people. And it was just such a, it was incredibly stressful job because, you know, if we didn't like succeed, the whole company was going to fail. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was just everybody was panicking all the time. And I was supposed to meet someone for lunch somewhere. And I got there. He wasn't there. And he just didn't show up. And he was someone who was never late. And I got really concerned. And then I suddenly had this realization that I was at the wrong restaurant. Mm. And I didn't have a car. So I ran to the restaurant. And then when I got to the restaurant, I just was crazy. I can't explain it. I just, I just like went over, I just like went over some edge and I was acting like a crazy person, not like angry or anything, but just like, like all my boundaries were gone and I was just babbling. And it, it was just like the whole day was, it became very weird and I couldn't work anymore and uh, all this stuff. So, you know, I'd want to talk to my therapist about it. He said, Oh, I have a feeling that if you hadn't run down that hill, you would have been fine. That went that running down the hill just like added all this extra adrenaline into your system and sent you over the edge. And so that was just a great insight to me. I'm sorry I can't say it had to do with yoga, but you know, just when I heard that, I realized, you know, that sort of became a little mantra for me, don't run down the hill, right? Like mm. when you're, yeah, don't panic and start just like. Can, can I stop you there for a minute, though? I think this yeah. story shows how far we've come with our understanding, because you're talking in the 1990s. That was like kind of a, a strange foreign idea that your physiology, the, the running, yeah, how connected into your mental state and, and that that was like an aha moment versus I think most people doing yoga today. That's like a common sense that, yes, when you're off physiologically yoga can help your physiology affects your mind and your emotions like it seems almost like common sense in 2022 but we're talking maybe 30 years ago this was a brand new idea yeah it's kind of crazy i mean i think um but i think there still is a problem with this idea of the mind being separate from the body that's really ingrained in our culture because it comes from a lot of the religions that people in the West practice. But it's actually an early yoga as well, that somehow the mind is, you know, like if you look in the yoga sutras, that the mind is a separate thing from the impure body. The soul is pure, the mind, the body is impure and so on. So yeah, it's really hard to get out of that mindset that the body and the the mind are not at all separate. I mean, to me, I actually now just think of my body and mind as being like one thing. There's Mm. no boundary at all. And it's just basically, you know, my body's the part of my mind that's interacting with the world, right? It's how the mind gets information through its senses. It's how the mind takes action and that there's no actual separation whatsoever. And that's really hard for people to, they're so used to this, mind-body separation idea, it's really hard for them to switch into another way of thinking. And that, you know, that goes all the way back to the Bible. It goes all the way back to some of the early philosophers. I mean, this is, 
deeply ingrained in us that the body and the mind are separate. And I, for one, am so happy that both medicine, psychology, yoga, we're all starting to understand, as you said, that oneness, that your body is just the interface with the world. Right. Right. So, yeah, I think there's a a lot of things about, like you mentioned, people having a, taking a long time to learn and to accept. There's a lot of things about yoga and how practices affect your emotions and thoughts as well as your body. And then also just some yoga philosophy ideas that are, are new to people that, you know, it, it, it's such a mindset switch. I had to do it with this friend of mine, like who'd been doing Iyengar yoga for years. And I was telling him that yoga poses could affect your mood and your emotions. And he just didn't believe me. So, <laughs> so, and I see him, I would see him every year during the summer. So one summer I said, well, I'm going to put you in this forward band and you need to stay for a while. And, you know, he came, I said, do you feel any different? And he said, no, I don't. Okay. So then the next year I was like, okay, now I'm going to be really serious about this. And I put him in a supported forward bend that he could hold for a really long time. And I said, you're going to stay at least three minutes. Cause that was a magic number I got from younger people. And then, you know, when he came out and he lifted his head up, I could see it in his face. I mean, I'm sure you've had that experience too, of like teaching yeah. a class and seeing everyone's faces after they've done a quieting practice or pose. And then he was like, yeah, yeah, I feel it. So (laughs) I think that's so important. What you just said that we are not going to convince people of this oneness of body and mind by talking to them because they have an opinion and, you know, it's not going to change, but when we give them an experience, they can't deny that. Right. And, and that experiential learning, which is, you know, what yoga is, according to Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, yoga is experiential. I just really want to hammer that one home because we can talk and talk and talk, but until somebody feels it, that's when their aha moment comes. And I think we all had that when we started yoga, right? That, that first time when we were like, what the heck is this? (laughs) What just happened to me in this hour? (laughs) Such a lovely moment to see on his face, I'm sure. Yes, I love seeing that look on people's faces. And yeah, I just re-entered a room of people who had been practicing and then finished their practice. And then I, as I walked in the room, because someone else was teaching that, as I walked in the room, I just saw that look on everyone's faces. You know, and I knew, and it had been uh, an anti-anxiety sequence mm. that I had helped write. So that was... <laughs> Yeah. That, that's so, great. so can we get into this? Because you know, your your book is about practices and meditations for moving through stress, anxiety, grief, and life transitions. And then in the very first pages, before you even get into chapter one, it's it says using this book. And then in the second paragraph, you write maybe the most important thing I've learned about using yoga for times of change, or for that matter, yoga for any time is that everyone is different in their abilities, their preferences, and personal approaches to yoga. So like those one-size-fits-all outfits that never look good on me, there's no one-size-fits-all yoga that works for everyone. That's why instead of recommending a single way for practice, I'm going to provide you with a large variety of suggestions to choose from so you can discover what works best for you. 
So in your book, I I'm seeing like, almost like, Hey, here's a potential protocol. Here's a potential protocol. Here's a potential protocol. But I think you're very good at saying, look, sometimes when you're really angry, you need a very vigorous energizing practice to kind of like push it through you. And other times you might be able to go into a very gentle, calming, soothing practice and just kind of work your way down from, from all of that anger. So is that kind of your intention is to, to give options for people to try on themselves? Oh, absolutely. I think that's really, really important. I think that's probably the most important message of my book is that everyone's different and you have to find what works for you and that different practices actually affect people differently. So you need to try them and then be very honest about whether they're working for you or not. Because there's this kind of a myth, I would say, that all yoga is calming. The yoga is calming. Like a doctor might even say, oh, go do yoga. It's calming. And then somebody might go to like a power yoga class and get all charged up (laughs) or find they can't sleep after their practice. So that's an important concept is, you know, no, not, not all yoga is calming, but then also that everybody's different and different things affect people differently. So even if you, you know, for example, someone might say, well, restorative yoga, that's calming, right? For everyone. Well, no, that's not actually true. Like sometimes if you're really agitated and I've experienced this, you know, lying down in a restorative pose is the last thing you feel like doing. And you feel like you just need to move before you can relax. Maybe you can do it later, or, or maybe that's just not even the right practice for you at a given time. And you should do supported inversions instead, which are more active and also calming. So there's that. I mean, I think I learned that a long time ago when we were talking about with a group of students about how poses affected them. And one of the students said, oh, twists make her sleepy. So, you know, you could say, oh, no, you know, twists can't make you sleepy because twists are stimulating because <laughs> that's what that that's what the the lore is. You know, when you look at poses in the Iyengar system, but, you know, she says they make her sleepy. They do. Right. So people also have to trust how they're reacting to things and search for what actually does work for them, even if it's sort of unconventional and yeah, that's, mm-hmm. I, that is why I offer so many suggestions. And then, you know, also end with my motto saying, if it's not working for you, it's not working for you. So, cause, cause people like, you know, I hear students say, Oh, I don't understand. You know, I'm doing this breath practice and it's supposed to calm me and it's, it's not working. It's not calming me. What's wrong with me. And I'm like, there's nothing wrong with you. That's just not working for you right now. So like what, what else could you try that might work? So and that's really important too. I think in our pre-interview email exchange, I had told you, I think this is for me. I mean, this is the yoga therapy hour podcast. I think this is where yoga therapy it is really astounding that we can help people co-assess. I I call it a co-assessment with the student. How are you feeling? Do you feel like you need to discharge and energize, or do you feel like you need to soothe and pacify? And really through that initial yoga therapy assessment, which can be done with an individual or a small group, 
figuring out, helping them figure out which direction they want to go with it and what does work for them. You know, the, the theory doesn't always match up with the experience. So I think I told you that I, I love your book and I think your book and your message is one of the most potent promoters of why yoga therapy might be needed to help people understand this because it's actually kind of difficult to understand on your own why twists make me sleepy right like like why is that but i i do believe through yoga therapy we we can help people understand why these poses might have this effect but on a different day or a different season or a different stage of life it may have a completely different effect so i i don't think you wrote the book with that in mind but because it is the yoga therapy hour podcast i just wanted to to put that in there <laughs> No, I, I didn't really write it for yoga therapists per se, but you know, I probably actually have been influenced a little bit by yoga therapy because I did uh, help Timothy McCall with his book, Yoga as Medicine. And that's from quite a number of years ago now. And the message of that one really is that each person's different and needs a customized practice. So I, I, I edited the book before the editor saw it. And then I worked on the instructions. I'm writing the instructions for how to do the poses. And I worked on the photo shoot. I just want to say what I did, but you know, so I got really involved in reading the whole book and, and thinking about it and talking to him about it because we were working together a lot at that time. So, you know, I was influenced by that yoga therapy approach. And I have been since then, you know, I'm influenced by my own experience of, you know, noticing I don't react to things the way you're supposed to sometimes and people I know also don't, but then I also do know that, that the approach of having a personalized and customized solution for you is the only thing that really works. And, you know, I just hope we can empower people to understand that and to do some of it on their own as well, because, you know, it's great to go to a yoga therapist. I'm sure it's just really a profound experience, but at a certain point, you know, especially if you're not going every day, you just need to start to like internalize some of those things. Right. Mm -hmm. So that if you have a day, you know, when you're feeling near the edge, you, you, you like I described it by myself that you can start noticing it and then remember, Oh, my yoga therapist said here, you know, here's how to double down, that would be a good thing to give for you therapists to give people too. is like, oh, here's your normal practice. And here's a doubling down practice. Things are really bad. So then, but they still need to be able to recognize in themselves, you know, when it's time to double down and, you know, and to do and that. I think, I think that is the goal of yoga therapy is that we're teaching people how to recognize those experiences. Like your psychologist said, I don't think that would have happened if you hadn't run downhill. Right. That's what a yoga therapist is doing is connecting the, the mind and the body and helping each client understand themselves. I don't even think it's about giving them, you know, walking them through a practice, like come to me right. and I'll walk you through a practice. I think it is much more of this exploration of the body mind connection and what do I do when I get to the edge and what are the lifestyle habits I can shift for myself? Right. You know? So I think it's interesting. You say this book is not about yoga therapy, but my opinion, Nina, after reading it is it actually is yoga therapy. <laughs> Maybe you don't want to hear that, but. Well, I guess I don't want to hear that. I'll tell you what, I just feel, I, I just want to be what 
humble and and honest and I'm not a trained yoga therapist. Now, that doesn't mean I haven't given private lessons to students who have conditions like anxiety and I haven't made suggestions from them from listening to them. And I have an example in the book of two different students who had anxiety and I gave them very different things to do based on their lifestyles and what they liked and what worked for them and so on. So I use that to illustrate how things need to be different for everybody. So I have had that experience, but I just want to be careful, I think, not to claim being a yoga therapist because I'm not a certified yoga therapist or, or even one of those grand, you know, I have some friends who are grandfathered in, even though they haven't had the training. So I, I think that's just the main reason why I'm cautious. So I accept what you said, but I just don't want to claim to be a yoga therapist myself. That. Yeah, no, I understand yeah. that. But I think there's this really big discussion going on in the yoga community about what is yoga? What is yoga therapy? Where did they cross over? Where are they similar? Where are they different? And just to say that this connection of emotions like stress, anxiety, grief, and life's transitions, that falls squarely in both camps, right? think the big difference is doing a formal assessment, setting goals together and tracking progress over time. That falls more in the yoga therapy. Right. So, you know, I just wanted to point that out because I, I don't have just regular yoga people come on the show because it's the yoga therapy hour, but I felt that your book was so closely connected to yoga therapy that I thought it was a, a good match for us. So I really wanted to go back and revisit the concept of anger, because we've on the show talked a lot about anxiety and depression and fear, but anger is something that I find people don't want to talk about. They don't want to admit that they're having it somehow in their minds. They're a bad person if they get angry, but a lot of what you write about in your book about anger is that it actually can be a protective and positive thing. Do you want to say anything about that? Yeah, definitely. I, I decided during the writing of this book, I think that's one thing that I learned. And it partly came from talking to this friend of mine, who's a psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Scott Lose, who also teaches mindfulness, you know, about some of these emotions. And I just want to stop using the term negative emotions that people fall into. They talk about emotions being positive and negative and negative emotions are like ones you're not supposed to have, especially anger because it's violent or whatever. But on the other hand, you know, we evolve with all these emotions for a reason. Anger is a healthy signal too, just like all of our other emotions, you know, whether it's an emotion about something good or whether it's an emotion that we should be scared of something or whether it's emotion that you know, makes us angry because anger alerts us to a potential threat that's physical, emotional, or both. And that threat could be to you personally, or it could be to a group of people that you care about or to your family or to, you know, your country or to the world as well. So what I'll just say is like, maybe you're angry at the way the government treats certain groups of people, or maybe you're angry at a person who drives really badly in your neighborhood because they might kill someone. There's people going through the stop sign at my intersection down the street. There's a four-way stop sign. And I don't know, people just got worse driving during the pandemic. And they're just, they're just 
driving right through it. They're not even slowing down. And, you know, I know people have been hit there. So that makes me angry, right? So, you know, that's not a terrible feeling. It's a feeling that says, you know, there's a danger here. Like, what can you do about it? You know, and there's peaceful ways of acting on anger. Like you can engage in social activism, but you know, like that action where we, we organized in the neighborhood to, to try to do something about this dangerous traffic situation. So, or, you know, maybe you want to give money toward some cause or work on the environment because you're angry at what some irresponsible companies and people are doing to our world. So yeah, anger can be a positive force for change, right? So I think that's really important. So again, when we talked about kind of listening to your painful emotions, whatever they are with, with, you know, you said you're with your thinking brain as opposed to your emotional brain, that it's important to listen when you're angry to see like, why am I angry? Is this some kind of reaction to some injustice that's happening or some real threat? And do I need to take action? Or is it some sort of sometimes we get our buttons pushed because a situation that we're in reminds us of another situation, like, you know, from our childhood or, you know, there's, so that's where we get in, you know what I mean? Or like, if you, I have an example of, in my book of a person who grew up in a very angry household with a, a father who had PTSD and alcoholism. And, you know, so they're just like things just, they just fall into these patterns and, you know, using that brain to like decide whether this feeling you're having just like fear or anxiety is, is this based on a real situation in front of me? Or am I just having some automatic anger reaction that's not appropriate mm. to the circumstances in front of me? So I think that's really important. And, you know, again, if you're just in a rage or whatever and can't think clearly before you're able to look at your thoughts, because you do tend to, and like you, you said, when you uh, when your window of tolerance was so low, you just went off, you know, you, you couldn't really control that. So you do need to like calm yourself down from that. So before you can listen, sometimes you need to quiet yourself down. And you mentioned earlier in our conversation, you know, possible ways would be to work out your anger first by doing a really active practice, kind of expel the extra energy and then calm down. Or, you know, if you're just, maybe your energy just all went away after your blast of anger and you just want to like, rest and calm down you could do a calming practice like that instead there's some ideas so what i heard you say though is that anger can be a motivator it can be a message that something is off it can be almost a protector right and and that you know we can determine hopefully if we're not too angry and can't Mm -hmm. control ourselves we can determine which direction we're going to take that anger in there was one other quote I wanted to read out of your book because I, I think it's really interesting. And I'm, I hope I'm saying the name right. It's on page 91 with Dr. Scott Laze. Laze, yeah. So here's what he says. Although we tend to consider anger, especially to be a negative emotion, it's actually a healthy signal that alerts us to potential threat. Dr. Scott Laze says, The way I think about it, anger is a normal response to certain situations and even a healthy one. 
and expressing that in a skillful way is normal and important. And I, I just wanted to stress that, that anger actually can be very healthy. It can alert us to the fact that someone's stepped over our boundaries. It can alert us to the fact that I didn't really say what I wanted to say. And now I'm ruminating about it for three days, or I allowed someone to treat me in a way that I I don't like, and I don't want to do that anymore. I, to think of anger as, as a healthy response, to me, that opened up so many doors. How about you? Had Do you think of it that way sometimes? Well, that was kind of a new idea to me, really. So, you know, I went through an interesting learning process as I was writing the book. I have so many amazing friends and resources in my life. I'm so grateful to them. And I reached out to a lot of people and I was able to interview them and talk with them. And, you know, as I thought about this, it was very powerful to me. Like I said, I just changed all my thoughts about the so-called negative emotions. And, you know, I used to use that word before and now I just never even use it. And yeah, I think about it all the time when I see now, when, when I feel anger and when I see other people get angry and to try to understand, you know, what's going on there. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's such really, a big deal. Like when I used to feel angry, I would be like, ashamed. Oh, don't, yeah, be sh- ashamed of yourself. You shouldn't act like that. You did it. And then to have this other door open that, wow, you're having a healthy response to a dysfunctional situation. Sometimes, you know, sometimes right. <laughs> my anger is because of my desire and my unmet expectations, right. me, me creating my own suffering. But there are other times that my boundaries have really been trampled on mm-hmm. and to have that opening to say, I'm being healthy by determining that, you know, I have a right to feel angry and I can do whatever I want with that. I can have a conversation. I can do a vigorous practice. I can soothe myself but I have the sovereignty to decide how I'm going to meet my anger. That was a big deal for me. That's great. I mean, I think the trick is with anger that makes it a little more complex, maybe, maybe not, you know, deciding with that phrase, he is responding skillfully. I think that's like the key because if you believe in nonviolence and also you understand like the reason for that, because acting in a violent, angry way just sort of perpetuates violence and anger, that responding skillfully is key. Having the feeling, exploring why you're having the feeling, and then deciding what to do about it. So, you know, in my book, what I do is I remind people about the, the yamas as possible guidelines for how to respond. So there are ways to respond skillfully, and that means, you know, not by attacking or being violent or causing more harm because that just perpetuates things and makes it worse, but finding a way to, you know, make your stand or act, you know, peace. Well, I mean, Gandhi is a perfect example of that, right? He, he was fighting against the wrongs that the British empire did to the country of India through nonviolence. And also he said he felt, Interestingly, he said he felt anger, not at the English people, but at the situation, right? Not at the British people themselves. So, you know, he did have a feeling of injustice and anger that he channeled into nonviolent, peaceful protest. So, yeah, I mean, that's... And shutting the economy down. (laughs) 
you know, I, I think that's yeah. important, especially in, in the times that we are in right now with so many people angry at the Supreme court and all that's going on, we are going to have to find skillful action and it may be similar to Gandhi, everything from peaceful protests to shutting certain parts of our economy down by refusing to buy from these companies or, you know, there's a lot of ways to do it that don't involve hurting our own nervous system and immune system and mental health and don't involve being violent towards others. You know, we, as yogis, we, we should be able to figure out this skillful action just like Gandhi did. I hope so. Yeah. I think that's an important message because you know, when I talk about accepting change, I don't mean that you should just say, oh, well, that's how it is. I shouldn't do anything about it. Mm. That's a really important message of the book too. Cause I think a lot of people feel like, oh, you should just be okay with everything and that that's yoga somehow, but actually standing up for what's right. And I use the example of Arjuna and the Bhagavad Gita, you know, standing up for what's right is part of the yoga path and karma yoga and all that. So taking those, being a social activist, working for the good of the world and all that is, is an important part of yoga as well. And so that's related to anger, I think, because there's anger at injustice. There's anger at, you know, the state of the world. There's anger at humanity being threatened, you know, for our survival or, you know, and also whatever nature. <laughs> so, so Yeah. So the trick is it's just so hard as an individual to decide what the skillful action for me or you is, because I think each person has different gifts and challenges, resources. So determining how can I contribute to, you know, skillfully to the things I want to see different or see change. I think that's where the rubber really hits the road and then not burning yourself out trying to do it. Yeah, I think that's true. And like right now, I feel sort of unclear about mm-hmm. what I'm going to do, but I, that doesn't mean I'm not going to figure out some things eventually. But yeah, and it's been an issue for me in a way because, you know, I have a neighbor who's like really into like political organizing and everything and writing postcards and call, or calling people on the phone to try, get them to vote. And that's that's just not I'm not I'm not good at trying to do that. So, you know, I do it, I do my work in other ways by writing and um, helping individuals. I'm more, I'm better at helping an, an, an individual than trying to organize a group or whatever. But yeah, it's a trick to figure out, as you said, like, what is the right way for you to respond to situations? And, and everybody has their opinion that if you're not doing the postcards, you must be lazy and not care. Like. <laughs> It's really hard to get criticized yes. for finding your skillful way forward when other people think you should be doing something else. I find that interesting, but that's another topic for another day. Yes. So yes. let's let's wrap it up here. You said you had a few closing thoughts about yoga for times of change. Yeah, you know, you you talked about how long it takes people, your students to kind of get the understanding of what's going that, you know, they can understand how their body and nervous system is affecting their mental state. So that's, that's important because I also acknowledge that, but I think, so I want to encourage people to, by saying that becoming steadier and calmer in the face of life's ups and downs 
just makes your whole life easier and happier even. So I, I really think it's worth putting in the effort to find the right practices for you and to practice regularly. You know, that, bring that baseline level of stress down. Right. Yeah. So taking the effort to find them because it in, involves some exploration time and then committing to time practicing as well and practicing over time because it does, it does take time. So that's an important message because I just, I, I just think it's worth that. I hope people don't get overwhelmed by thinking, Oh, I have to, you know, it's too much I, to practice every day. I'm too busy. You know, I just think it's worth it. A hundred percent. It's like that old adage, a stitch in time saves nine. I think people don't understand that when we have a stressful spin out day where you can no longer think straight and you're not making good decisions and you're saying things you have no business saying, well, if you'd done your practice in the morning, maybe that spin out wouldn't have happened, right? That you're actually investing in yourself by taking that time to practice and saving time that maybe you wouldn't have to spend because you didn't flip out that day, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And plus you probably sleep better. <laughs> so you feel happier. Yeah. Who doesn't want to feel happier? Yeah. It seems like a luxury to take time to practice, but it's actually not a luxury. It's just as important as eating. Yeah. I mean, I realized that for me because I did have some serious problems that I just feel like, you know, I hope and wish other people will realize it too, but it really can change your life for the better. And I also think that starting small is good. So I have this book that's full of so many suggestions. It could be overwhelming, I think. So I don't, first of all, I don't think people even need to read the whole book. If they're interested in a particular topic, it kind of organizes. So there's a little repetition mm -hmm. so that if you go to a certain section and just read that, it'll not only tell you what you know, but it might send you to another part of the book to read as well. So just, you know, look up the topic that interests you and pick one or two things to start practicing and see how they go. Because really even having one or two things that you can practice in your daily life is enough if they're working. You don't need to do all the stuff, right? So I think that's important. And then, you know, of course, if you only read the parts of the book that interest you now, you can always come back later. If you something you're doing isn't working and you want something else or something new has come up for you and you want to learn about that. So I just wanted people to understand that, that that's how they can use the book, that it's not necessary to do I all the practices like or read from cover to cover and so yeah. on. I always read like six or seven books simultaneously. <laughs> so I love this kind of book where you can, oh, I'm having an angry day. What does it say about anger? Right, or, right. Oh, I didn't sleep last night. I feel so anxious. What does it say about that? I love yeah. that kind of just, it's almost like a tip sheet, you know, or a cliff notes of here's some things you can think about. Yeah. So I did organize it that way. And purpose. And that was, um, I came from my technical writing background. Mm, well, <laughs> I learned how to organize information in such a way that people could like either read it cover to cover or just go to the parts that concern them and figure out what to do from there. So, and, and Nina, your publisher is Shambhala. That's right. Yeah. Right. So where can people get the book? Well, it's actually available for most booksellers online. 
So whether that's like Penguin Random House has a lot of options, actually it has several buttons that you can use, but you know, it's, it's available from everything from Amazon to Powell's books to IndieBound to, you know, just, you can just Google it. If you want to support your local bookstore too, you could go, you could actually just go there and ask them to, or phone them and ask them to order it for you. So it depends on how you want to spend your money or whether you want to get a discount or whatever. So pretty much, I'm not saying that every bookstore you stop in is going to have it, but. Mm. But I'm also putting on the screen because this podcast also comes on YouTube and is a video podcast, but I'm just putting here the Shambhala publications that it is sold right. through, through yeah, them could- also. Yeah, you can buy it directly from Shambhala if you like. So, And do you have a website, Nina? I do. It's called yogafortimesofchange.com. <laughs> and uh, the Yoga for Healthy Aging blog is actually there. So there's a lot of information there, 10 years worth of information on the blog about both Yoga for Times of Change and Yoga for Healthy Aging concepts and information about the books. There you are. There's companion videos to go with the the book as well, which I'm just thrilled about. I've always kind of dreamed about how great it would be if you did a book and then all the practices in the book were on video somewhere done by, in this case, Barry Risman did them. She was the model for the book and is somebody I work with a lot. And so that's great if you want to be led through by the the teacher. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Video classes. Great. Yeah. That's really kind of unique to have a book full of sequences that you can also come and see the video taking you through that sequence. I think that's a really amazing model. I was really happy that you wanted to do it. So that's great. Well, thank you, Nina, for coming today to talk to us about Yoga for Times of Change. I think it's something that's on everyone's mind and the mental health, I call it the mental health pandemic is now upon us. You know, we we have the COVID pandemic and now the mental health pandemic is, is alive and well. And I think most people are suffering some type of anxiety, depression, fear, insomnia, you know, anger. So I think your book is really beautifully timed for the needs of society right now. Well, thank you so much for having me. And it was wonderful to talk with you and finally meet you. Yes. Nice to meet you too. Thanks for coming. I'm reflecting on this interview with Nina. And the thing that really stands out to me is how us yoga people and yoga therapists we have learned so much information. We've, you know, basically gotten a master's degree in yoga. But the people that we're working with are in a very different place than us. And I think when we learn all of this information in yoga therapy school or even in through, you know, becoming a high-level yoga teacher, we want to give it all right away and use all these amazing things we've learned and listening to Nina brought me back to the very beginning of the very first group yoga class that I had taken. And the reason I went there is because I had moved to California, which has six lanes of traffic that you're driving down the freeway. 
And you have to maneuver through six lanes of traffic to get wherever you're going. But my neck was so tight, I could not turn my head to look over my right shoulder to check the lane to see if it was safe to get into the next lane. (laughs) And so after about a month of living in California back in 1996, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to do something about my neck because I can't drive safely here. So I went to a yoga class and I was bored out of my mind. I had been a high level athlete in college, high jump, long jump, shot put hurdles, 800, 200 and javelin. I was a heptathlete and this slow, boring yoga class where they were doing lots of breathing and I had no idea what this was about. I I didn't like it. The first one I walked out and I was like, oh my God, who are those people and what are they doing? And then a little bit later, I had to come back because I still couldn't drive safely because of my neck not being able to turn. And then something happened, kind of like what Nina described to the gentleman that she had put in a supported forward bend. Something happened to me that second time that I felt different. And I was like, oh, there's something going on here. I had this aha moment that there was something here I needed to understand. And I remember going to the teacher saying, explain to me what just happened. I don't, I don't get it. I feel different, but I want to know. And at that time, you know, back in the late eighties, early nineties, people didn't have polyvagal theory. They didn't understand the connection between the nervous system and, you know, the emotions they didn't, we didn't have all this research that we have today. And and she really couldn't explain it to me, but that is to say most of the people we are meeting that's where they are even today in 2022. Their mind is about to be blown when they have this experience of what we call sattva. And they they don't have all this information that we have. So why I think that's important is to remind us to go back to beginner's mind and try to remember what it's like to not understand the body-mind connection, to not remember or even know that there is a body-mind connection, most of the people we meet don't know about that yet. And so it's a great reminder to me that instead of bombarding people with really high-level knowledge, maybe just plant little seeds here and there to help them understand that when their physiology is off, their mental state might be off and vice versa. And just give little tiny seeds and then let those seeds, you know, grow into beautiful flowers one day. All right. So it all boils down to beginner mind. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. And we hope to see you next week. Please don't forget to sign up for our newsletter mailing list, where we give you a free gift every single week. It's usually something that the guest has been talking about, like a book chapter or an article or an infographic. Check out the show notes for that. Thank you for listening today. Don't forget, we have a new YouTube channel called Optimal State with Amy Wheeler. We also have a new Patreon page where you can support us to bring you the most excellent content. And that is Optimal State and the Yoga Therapy Hour Patreon page. Also, you could write us a review on most major platforms that host podcasts. Give us five stars if you appreciate the show and tell us what you love so that we can do more of that. 
Finally, we support several nonprofit organizations through this podcast. See the show notes to understand how you can help. If you'd like to be a guest or a sponsor for this program, contact us at the email welcome at theoptimalstate.com. Welcome at theoptimalstate.com. And finally, a special thank you to our team here at Optimal State. We are truly a global family. George Mantuan, one of our executive producers. Adam Satchel, senior media producer and sound engineer from the Philippines. Krishna Panchal, a producer from Canada. Modupe Abdullahi, who does the show notes and is an editor for us from Nigeria. And Peter Morley, who wrote and produced the music for this show, who lives in Australia. Find more about Peter's work at www.zenmusic.biz. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.